So I thought tonight, because of the theme of our retreat and the way it's been unfolding, somewhat inspired, of course, by how James has been sharing what he shares, I thought I would share, at least in the first part, some of my journey with this practice in terms of the heart and the head. Because it's, it's, it's a little different from James's, and it's quite interesting, I think. And I don't usually talk that much about how, you know, the things that I've experienced, I sort of, they come out in bits and pieces, the odd story, but anyway. So, um, it, it was when he talked about, you know, the Buddha says that there are faith followers and wisdom followers. And so I got to thinking about it, and, you know, I have never been a faith type and um, I mean, it's partly my nature, and it's, of course, largely my conditioning. Um, and that I was raised in, in, you know, in the Anglican church, which isn't a particularly faith-based thing. And so, you know, when, when James is talking about his conversations with Ram Dass, and, you know, and that I love you, Dharma, and I'm just like... <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't work for me at all. <laughs> Like well, even in, after three times, you're able to go like, yeah, and I'm like, God, <laughs> I could say it a thousand times. It wouldn't work that way. So anyway, it made me think about my, you know, relationship with all of this and and how it works in these terms. So, so to begin with, um, I'm the same age as as James, within a year or something. And so, summer of '72, I spent in a bus with a bunch of other hippies around North America, reading Be Here Now, you know, every day to each other. And for instance, you know, went to the Lama Foundation, which was just formed by Ram Dass and, and uh, stoned a lot of the time <laughs> and um, loving every situation and everyone we met. But that was our one creed. If you actually love everyone and everything, it'll all work out fine. And it seemed to. It was the most wonderful, magical, high summer. I've, you know, I still <laughs> remember it with great joy. <laughs> Anyway, so soon after that, um, through just, you know, randomness, really, I, the boyfriend I was with, I, uh, he introduced me to some really nice people. And it was the people that I liked. They were good people. They were happy people. They were kind, respectful, and they were meditators. So I thought, hmm, maybe that all goes together. So I started because I was there. Actually, it was Joshua Tree for the winter, living in a van with a plexiglass Double. I won't go into too many of the details of my life, but anyway, um, I started meditating, and uh, and these were devotees of an Indian guru, Sikh guru, and you know, once you were really into it, you were supposed to meditate two and a half hours a day. So I s stopped smoking pot and so on, and started meditating. And um, a little bit after that, I got caught by the cops without having a license and a green card, and sent to Canada. And so I became initiated in the spring of 1973 and continued to practice two and a half hours a day of sitting, which when you're 24 and 25 is serious meditation, hardcore. And, um, and you had to repeat this holy name, a repetition of names for 45 minutes. And then you had to put your thumbs in your ears and your fingers like this and then visualize at the third eye and focus and eventually see light and then eventually stabilize the form of the guru and then eventually merge with that. This was the plan. Anyway, so a year later or something, I went off to India to the ashram. It's not, this is 74 when James is doing his thing in Boulder. We were all in this era. It's a great era to be living in when you were young and enthusiastic. And, and um, meditated eight hours a day. Was there for maybe three months, something, in the, in the, up in the Punjab area with the Sikhs. And he was a very nice guy. You know, he was good looking and older and kind and steady and fine. And uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and he actually was, they were, I shouldn't laugh at it because it was like beautiful. Um, they arranged that we had a personal meeting with him when we first got there and then we were going to leave. And so after the three months of mostly in the ashram, a little bit of being an Indian tourist, very vulnerable, 
you know, feeling a little insecure with the camera, being so blonde and young and had just been meditating all day. It was a bit much. Didn't like it. I'm not one of the people who became an India Walla. And um, anyway, I, so I had my farewell conversation with him and, and I realized, you know, I don't actually want to merge with you on the inner planes, you know. <laughs> I just don't love you that much. He was really nice. He was nothing offensive, nothing scary, nothing breaking any, you know, nothing. It was fine. I just, it's just not my thing, you know. I just. And so, you know, and it would have been easy with somebody like that because there was no reason not to and everyone is all very excited around me and there's hundreds of people. And so the ashram is like a town. It's like huge walls and many people live there and thousands would come and visit at different, you know, Bandara days and stuff. So it, was e- it would have been easy to get swept into it and I just... I sort of tried, but I, no. Anyway, so there was no problem. I came home and, and so I thought that's just not my thing. But I had already now, you know, had a couple of years of serious meditation. And uh, so then I, I read a couple of Zen books, Three Pillars of Zen and uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, these classic books. And, um, and liked the, the simpleness and the cleanness and the lack of dogma and the lack of expectation of Buddhism. But just theoretically, I was, you know, fast forward another two or three years, had a family, moved to where I live now, and then had a broken heart. And so I knew that I did have this background of meditation for a few years and and I knew I needed to calm down so I went on a retreat a 10-day Vipassana retreat because a friend was going on one and I thought that's what I need I need to calm down because otherwise I'm going to get fall down into this you know abyss of misery and brokenheartedness and I need some grounding here I knew that much I never listened to a word they said But I sat and I calmed down and I found my feet on the ground instead of swirling in out of, out of depth, you know, and, and, and got a little sort of calm handle on what I now had to do with the rest of my life. And, and that was the beginning of going to Vipassana retreats. That was in 81. And so all through the 80s, well, from 81 to 88, I went to about 10 of those 10-day Goenka retreats, which are, you know, rigorous, serious meditation, long hours. And... Um, and for me, again, it's my nature and it's my background and I didn't actually like Goenka. I didn't, I wasn't inspired. I didn't feel touched. You know, I listened, you know, it's all on videotape. So I listened to the videotapes. I'm a good girl. You know, I try hard. I'm a type A person. So I did the work. And, um, but I just didn't feel it. But I did it. And, uh, and what I did find and what this is the important piece with this, is for my life then, I was now a single mum, I was now working as a midwife illegally, so there was a lot of stress with that, and, uh, and I was traveling a lot to the city from the country on the ferries many hours a month, and, and juggling my son, and not much money, and juggling a little job of here, and a little secretary here, and a, teaching a you know, prenatal class there, and maybe they'd give us 80 bucks for a birth of 48 hours of hard work, I mean, you know, it was just, those were the days. But the meditation enabled me to keep a sense of steadiness through all of that. It was a very, you know, it's an intense time. You're young, you're trying to get your life to go, you know. And, uh, and the meditation was essential for me to be able to not, you know, not get too exhausted, not get too, you know, anything, just to keep, keep it working, basically. I needed it. So I kept doing that until 1988. And in 1988, I met James. And James was the first, there were four teachers there who actually was able to express the Dharma in language that actually I could relate to. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. This is like I've met friends. And it's like we're in my kitchen speaking my language. This, I can get this. I can even get really behind this. I already knew about focusing my attention, about relaxing my body, you know, about just being in the present moment, but I didn't have any understanding of it because I just had sort of screened out words from somebody that I couldn't relate to in another language with not really my idiom, you know. And so then I got excited. Then I was like, this feels like coming home, that feeling. Then my heart started to go like, oh, yeah. So I got excited. And so um, I started to then do retreats in this part of the world, with James for quite a few years as my main teacher, maybe three or four years, I don't know, a few years in there. And Zaina um, and kept on going. And so then what happened in terms of heart and mind, 
is um, because I hadn't listened to the teachings or read them or really related to any of it, but just been sitting and being in my body, um, I didn't have sort of questions about it. I wasn't even thinking. I was busy with my life, and then I was in my body and being really present while I meditated. And so I was kind of following along. I wasn't looking for anything because I didn't know what to look for. I didn't even think about it. I didn't even have the time or something. And so I kind of let it unfold. I'm so glad I did. Um, it, one of the things meant that I didn't, because of my lifestyle um, and being a single mom, and I had to twist the arm of the father to take the child once in a while so I could you know, manage to go to a meditation retreat, um, which wasn't that easy. But uh, So my, it was what I could afford, what I could schedule when people weren't due to have babies. It wasn't about a particular retreat. or a, you know, it, was, it had to be close enough that I could drive there. It wasn't a very expensive flight or something. Um, so it wasn't about a particular form of practice or a particular teacher or any, it was just what I could manage to fit into the schedule, basically. Anything would do, anyone would do, I didn't really, so I didn't establish a relationship with a teacher or have a particular way of being taught. It just was whatever I could get my hands on at any time is all good enough for me. So I kind of fell into things rather than planned anything or expected, or decided to learn something. I didn't have any motivation from my head. I just knew I needed this to keep my life working. Whatever it was, was all cool with me, you know. So what happened as a result? The, I mean, one of the things that I... It worked to, to help me handle the stresses of my life and to not get so stressed. It worked to help me not get so irritated. I had a very difficult relationship with my mother for me to not get so triggered by my mother, but I'd be patient for way longer. Um, one of the things that touched me was the fact that the teachers, including James and his various colleagues and various others who he wouldn't even know, were nice people. And they were genuine people. And they were um, kind and friendly and happy people even and funny even and clever <laughs> all of which really inspired me you know it's like I like I found like well if that's what happens to you if you do this then I'm in in it you know like good <laughs> all that stuff looks right on you know so with they were sort of like manifesting what you know how this shows and so that was very much inspiring for me but it wasn't like I loved any one of them particularly or wanted to be like that. It just was like, this feels right. It's like it had the right flavor. So I'm like, I'm going to keep doing this. But what happened is the more I then practiced, the more the practice did me. And we, you hear us say this. Meaning, things began to make sense. I began to, um, in hearing the teachings, which I never had books or read or anything, I didn't have time, I was too busy being, you know, making my life work. Um, things I heard weren't like, oh, I want to understand that, what do you mean? We're like, that's right, that guy really knew what he was talking about, that's exactly what it's like. So I had more of a, a resonance rather than a, a wondering. I hardly had questions, I just was, I, don't, I just was the way. So I, I started having insights, like, you all have your own insights. I began to see things like, what seems so real? I mean, we say this in the way we teach. James even said it yesterday and today. What seemed so real in the way I was thinking about something was not an hour later. And so how could it have been that real? It wasn't that real. It was only real in my experience at the time. It itself wasn't really the truth. It was just a version of reality that my mind was telling me because now it had changed. So clearly, it wasn't actually the truth. That was pretty obvious. That's like, that's very significant kind of insight because you believe your mind, right? Until you start seeing that it's, it's just playing this game with you. Um, another thing that began to happen, and these things just happen like... It was its left hemisphere, its right hemisphere, instant intuitive knowing. It isn't processing, figuring out. I didn't have head involved. Um, as I, I began to actually um, like myself, now that's dramatic. I actually began to be friendly instead of mean, and not, you know the owl helped, and you know everything helped. But it just started happening. <laughs> and one day, 
while doing some walking meditation, this voice started up. If anyone's listened to me on Dharma Seed, I've said this many times, but it was an remarkable. I was doing walking meditation in a retreat, and this voice started up inside my head, and it said, for 45 minutes of the walking period, it was like, you know, Heather, you're doing okay. You're actually quite reasonably nice, you know. I mean, you could have been really weird, given your background, but... You know, you, you have a reasonable living, you know, you're not making very much money at it, but it's a good thing you're doing, your kids like you, you pay your taxes, you know, you're a decent person, you don't cheat on things, you know, you, you hold doors open for old ladies, you're actually really quite a nice person, you know. <laughs> it was a very kind of casual, sort of like pat, pat on the back, everything's okay, reassuring, friendly, at the end of which I had, duh, my light goes on, it's like, that's what meta is. I had already had an aversive relationship with meta as it was taught, because I was taught you say these words, and I would say the words, and they didn't. I couldn't get it, and I'm like, I, I'm hopeless, you know. Like, I, I don't want to be happy, obviously, or I don't really wish I'm peaceful. Or, and then I would try. Well, let's try a benefactor. Well, what benefactor? My grandmother never picked me up. My other one was dead. <laughs> My mother was difficult. My father never spoke to me. I had no cousins. Like, benefactors. Mm, no, that doesn't work. You know, so I had this kind of like, you know, didn't, didn't, I, I didn't love the Dharma thing. So, um, I, but I could actually tell myself that I was an okay person. I am an okay person. I'm a good person. I'm nice. I'm a law-abiding citizen who doesn't cause trouble and unnecessarily. It's like, yeah. And that was enough. That just happened. It just happened by itself one day. It wasn't even the words that were said. It was the tone of voice was unbelievable. It was just so, instead of like, it was always this, come on, come on kind of tone in my life, you know, always. And it was like, wow. Um, I began to see somewhere in the 90s in there, my mind was getting pretty quiet because I'd already done a fair number of years already. And um, I started to see everything breaking up. I started to see change, 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 everything changing, and it started to get really fast. It was really weird for quite a few years, I have to admit, my experience. But I really, really could see that nothing is staying the same for any length of time. And it's just shifting, 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 even sometimes really, really rapidly. There's nothing to hold on to. There isn't anything solid. It's just me trying to convince myself that this is how it is, or this is how you are, or your neighbor is an idiot. Like, they weren't an idiot for very long at all. <laughs> and so it was, it's, you, you just, you, you realize that trying to build on some kind of substantial, it's like trying to build a house on the sand. It just is, won't last. And you know it. Insightfully, you get it. You don't have to think about it or try. That's what began to happen. And then another thing that happened, I had an insight when I was here, and I've told this story a lot, so I won't tell the whole story, but it was in, in a March retreat here in March at Spirit Rock at, at breakfast, and I had this extraordinary relationship with an apple. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and in the biting into this lovely, delicious apple, I completely got in about a half a second that an apple isn't really, it was that emptiness thing I was answering you this morning, that an apple is only an apple for a little while. And then it turns into something quite different, especially via your teeth, you know, it turns into juice, which turns into saliva and stomach fluids, which turns into pee and turns into the river and turns into the ocean and turns into clouds and turns into rain and into sap in trees and into apples and into your mouth and round and round goes all this moisture. And apple isn't really an apple. It's just a name for a, that moisture in a few sacks of stuff inside a waxy red skin for a while. That whole thing of what really is going on and seeing through the the thingness of things just happens and it flash like that flash. And then when I would hear the teachings explained, I'd go like, "Yeah, absolutely." For instance, I also had some lovely experiences where um, I was able to get my mind began to become very very quiet because it you know it will eventually as it realizes it doesn't want to be frantically rushing around thinking all the time. It's just such a drag. And it enjoys resting quietly. And then the deep, sweet relief and peace of being quiet was just made it so clear that all the other busy stuff that we're trying to do and get things doesn't actually feel so good. 
resting for the system is the happiness that we want. Why we go through all the things we do and get all the things we get. It's not so we can have the things. It's so that we can reach the peace that comes after we've got them. But when you experience the peace, you get it. So the, the teachings teach you. The practice shows up in your consciousness in your own way. It was so... And so, but I, didn't, I wasn't sort of ahead of the curve. I wasn't you know, looking for anything. I just was like, it would just kind of, wow, like that happen. All kinds of other things, lovely. Um, so because of this... I increasingly, of course, you would imagine it will happen and has happened for some of you already yourselves, is I began to trust that the understandings would come because they were coming and they would come whenever they would come. And I knew that trying to figure them out wasn't going to speed things up. In fact, it was going to agitate me and get in the way. And so there increasingly grew this trust in the unfolding of it all. And this... Um, the. It isn't so much for me a sense of love as it is a sense of trusting. And trusting is the root of the word. Trust is the same root of the word truth. The way it actually is. Your awareness, when you have an insight of something, something you say, it just dawned on me, or I just realized. That's a a realization. That's another word of describing an insight, realization. It's already there, and now you know it's true. It's true for you. It may not be true for someone else. They'll have a different way of understanding or whatever. But you know it's true. Well, another word for the Dharma is the truth. Trust, truth, Dharma is all the same thing. And it's, you, you can't not trust. When you see something and you know that's how it is, of course you trust it. That's how it is. You really, and it isn't just an idea. An insight is like deeper than that. It's like you know you know, any, you know, I know my thoughts are not that reliable. So I'm not, I don't get so fooled by them. I don't get so caught by it. If I wake in the night and worry, I don't believe what I'm thinking so much. Because I know if I woke in the night and were happy, I wouldn't think those thoughts. They just are not that convincing. I know that. So this confidence, this kind of certainty that comes when we, we're trusting that the understandings that come. It brings such a, a sense of oh, relief and ease. And it takes the burden off me trying to figure it out or me trying to do it right. It takes the meing away. It lightens up the sense of meing. It's the effect of it. It's natural. It's the way it works. And then I began to, of course, the more I was then, I was then actually began to get interested in reading, you know, the Dharma and, you know, listening to other people. And then there were things like podcasts you could start to listen to and things. There weren't any of that in the early... There were books, but I didn't have time to read a book. Um, but I began to, uh, to realize that there, this, all this and the teachings of the Buddha describe exactly the experience that I was having and have been known and have been practiced and have been taught for 2,600 years and are still continuously practiced by thousands of people. It's like, oh my God, this is an amazing thing. This isn't just some lucky ideas that are coming. This is a, this is a whole a journey that's so tried and true. So again, deepening trust, you know, that this, this is so utterly reliable, so beneficial in all kinds of ways, showing up in all kinds of ways in my life. And then another insight that I had, or it's sort of insight if you can call it that, but experience, deep spiritual experience was, and this, this was very important piece too, is um, I, my real love, other than the truth, you know, my, my, what really delights me more than anything is, is nature, is outside, and particularly the English countryside, <laughs> because I, that was really the thing that worked for me as a kid, like there wasn't much else. It was a very nice setting I was in. But it was because of the setting that it was, I was happy, really. Bird song and climbing roses and honeysuckle and nightingales, all the bucolic things you've read about. And so I was surrounded by that and this miserable house thing. Anyway, um, so it, I'm so open to that and so love the beauty of it. And so I've had experiences, and in retreat experiences where the mind is getting very quiet, where I have witnessed such amazing 
imagery, such beauty, which already you've been talking, people have been coming today and sharing the neatest things you're seeing. You know it happens as the mind gets quiet and the eyes get soft and things show up that you would you know, discard previously. I've had like a field, a whole rolling meadow, gleaming, gleaming, completely gold with cobwebs as the sun is setting, shining on the cobwebs and the moon is rising, full moon over my shoulder. I'm just like exquisiteness like how can there be so many millions of spiders in a field full of cows it's like ah oh. and the the joy of something like that followed by a cup of tea of course being english followed by the mind just completely going quiet because of such well-being in the heart and really happening over and over different things and recognizing for myself that when my heart is really nourished, really satisfied, really uplifted, in whatever way it works for anybody, for me it's a field full of cobwebs and the sunset, then the mind will totally not have to worry about anything or think about anything or go anywhere and it will completely do what you want it to do and go really restful. No question for me. Beautiful. And, and, uh, and so my journey then has been not led by my head at all, not led by theory or wonderings, and not led exactly by my heart, because I'm not a devotee type, and I didn't actually love this stuff. I just felt like I trusted it. It's more experience-based, I would say, trust-based, confidence-based, understanding base than it is either the head or the heart. So I wanted to, that there's all these different ways that we're, you know, and everyone has your own way of going through this. But so needlessly, the way I teach then is, is in trying to encourage you to experience and not to think or understand it, even, even words. Words, I love words. I love the English language. I like playing with words, but I like to play around and find what really it means because that, to me, is what's real. The other is theory and hope, maybe, or maybe, you know, inspirational words which may feel nice, but it's not my own unless it's my experience. So this is why I get to teach the way I get to teach, you know. We all teach what works for ourselves, you know, and who we are. Yeah. And then one further piece about trusting it all is... Um, I know my experience, but then for the last 15, 16 years, I've been listening to people's experience too. And then over and over and over and over and over, I, I witness, not just hear words, but I witness people smiling with joy when they've understood something, they've had some understanding, or they've be suddenly been able to forgive their, you know, this enemy that they've been lurking around with for so long. They can just like really understand that. Or something softens or... You know, something makes sort of makes some sense. Whatever it is, however it is for people, you know it's true for them and you know it's healing them and you know they know. And it's the practicing being present that does it. And so it's so validating. So my trusting of the process is, is amplified many, many times over by being able to witness it working elsewhere, you know. So there you go, a little bit of sharing of that. Well, that would be encourage you. That's my point. Um, and so the word, of course, I've been using a lot, which to me is one of the biggest words, is the word trust. When we trust something or someone or ourselves, that feels like a settledness. It feels like we can let down and we don't need to be like, oh, oh what should I... Not sure. It allays anxiety. It's reassuring. It gives you something you can rest on or be held by in some way. And there are many things that we, we trust. But to be able to experience trusting is such a, a beautiful experience. And so I encourage anything that you trust to trust it, like to be conscious of trusting Whatever that is for you, sunsets maybe. The moon was new tonight, and there was Venus, and I 
love that. And that I just feel like, okay, the moon is doing what it's supposed to do at this time of the month. Very good. All is well. You know, it brings a sense of trust for me. Nature does it for me. And, uh, and I think that's useful. The opposite of trusting, when we don't trust, it's we're anxious. It's called doubt. And for those who know the way the Buddha taught all these lists of teachings, his mind was very organized. And so he didn't just teach randomly a bunch of talk. He just was able to like, and not just organize, but very fine. And he could say this, 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 and this will happen if you do this and that. And he was so accurate. It was so incredible. So, you know, he teaches these five states of mind, which disturb us from being our true nature of ease and present and clear and grounded and happy and calm and friendly, which are called hindrances. They hinder that. And uh, the, the biggest one is the fifth of them is doubt. It's the opposite of that state of trusting. And we all know it's like, oh, I don't think so. I'm not sure. I don't know. And when there's that sense of we can't trust, we can't trust people or we can't trust ourselves to work something out or we're not sure, we, the sense of I have to now get it together. I have to figure it out. I, I don't know what to do. I, I, I. I really, um, the eyeing feeling is really inflated when we're not trusting. And in the moments where we can trust something, it can take a rest. It's another word for love or another word for friendship. All these words are all related. Freedom or wholesomeness. But I like that particular, when I'm thinking of the mind and the heart, the heart, for me, when it's wholesome and at ease, there's this trusting ability. When there's trusting, it will relax. It can be open. It can be quiet. It's really available. When it's not trusting, it's guarded. It's trying to do something. It's not sure. It's busy. It's frantic. You know, better get something else then or, you know, busy. And we all know what that's like. And we're all, you know, we're all of these things. All of these different states and many more. So I'm going to move into um, a particular aspect, a a particular practice, which I think is key, a key piece in all of this, the journey from the head to the heart as we did last night. I love doing that, from the head to the heart. Um... But I'm just going to read a poem, not read. I have a poem in my mind, which is my probably favorite poem. It's still my, it's been for many years, my favorite poem. And it's by Hafiz that I've mentioned that name already on the retreat. So it's called Dropping Keys. And many of you may have heard me say it before. The small man, I actually think that means the small mind. But anyway, the small man builds cages for everyone he knows. I think it's everything, not just everyone. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage, who has to duck his head when the moon is low, that's how big we can be, keeps dropping keys all night long, or lifelong, actually, for the beautiful rowdy prisoners. (laughs) These beautiful parts and these rowdy parts which have all been locked down in our unconscious. By becoming sages, which is what you are, what we're doing, these keys keep dropping to enable the unconscious material to come up. And we keep doing it all the time. As long as we're practicing, it's happening. But we're dropping keys. We're not going down there and yanking them out or digging around trying to find anything. We drop the keys. We don't even drop is a pretty passive thing. It's not even intended. But what happens is unlocking happens somehow mysteriously. And we start to understand our beautiful things and our rowdy pieces. They come out and get... They get allowed to be known by consciousness. And then we get to understand what it's like being human for all of us. It's a beautiful, beautiful poem. And I like the word rowdy. I mean, really, it's such a kind word. (laughs) So to come to uh, 
this practice, which I think is so simple, but it's so essential and so tricky, um, that we can do. The amazing thing is that we humans, with these minds of ours, incredible, beautiful, brilliant, over-the-top minds of ours, we can actually use the mind to watch the mind. How bizarre is that? It's amazing. So we can see what's going on inside our own minds, with our minds. And one of the things... Well, we have to be able to because it's seeing how this mind is working and this heart is working and how, you know, the, pro, the, the mechanism of life happening, affecting me in a certain way. If it's pleasant, it triggers me into enjoying it, which can easily trigger me into wanting more of it and scheming to get it and getting all exhausted trying to find something, etc. That whole mechanism is seeable. We can actually see that happen over and over and over and the reverse and we can see it undoing itself when it's got all caught up in something. It can go, like, oh, I got all caught up in something. And it'll just go, blah, 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 and not do it. And we can see that and, and not just see it, but experience it and taste that and know what it is to be caught up and what it is to not be caught up over and over, which is really what we're doing. But the key piece here that I really want to encourage us, and I would really like to have taught you this about four days ago, but anyway, well, here we are, Friday night, um, is to be able to stay looking. Sounds very simple, but it's the stay. Not just look, but keep on looking. That's the key thing. Our minds are not good at this. We're very good at just a quick look. We can glance this and this and this and this and many things, but it's very jumpy. And it's pretty superficial. We sort of glance off. Oh, yeah, I get that. You know what it's like. when you, Somebody's telling you something laboriously and you've already got it and you want them to... Right? <laughs> I got it. Yeah. We're very good at getting things quickly and then on to the next thing and on to the next thing and jumping all around. But really, we don't really get things like that. We think we've got them. We've got them enough to satisfy the mind. But we haven't actually filled our hearts we haven't really got deeply understanding. We have a certain, certain amount enough to kid ourselves. We're superficial. We're surfacy. We bound off to the next thing. I love that word because I think of dogs and young dogs, puppies, for instance. And one of the reasons why we use the word puppy mind is because the, one, the puppies are really, really bad at staying still. They just don't lie down and hang out, right, for very long at all. That's the thing. And our minds are like this. Thich Nhat Hanh would say, well, it's like our minds are like a, a frog. You take a frog, you put it on a plate, and you watch it, and in no time at all it's jumped off the plate. And we're trying to develop froglessness, is one of his teachings. <laughs> But nothing much in the world that we do trains us to do that. Unless we're, say, studying music or, so, you know, there are, there are things that we do that we can do to slow us down. But on the whole, we think the quicker we are, the more things we can, you know, get covered, the better we are, and, the, you know, the more we get appreciated and stuff like this. The other thing is, it isn't just that we're jumpy and speedy, is that we deeply believe that the next moment will be better. And this is okay, but then I can just get a little bit more. And then when I get this just around the next corner, though, then it's going to get better. And so we're always just that little, this is a good retreat, but the next retreat, I tell you, will be really awesome. <laughs> well, that, for me, it was, because I, I, my mind works, I have a lot of visual all the time. You know, it, it, everything that's going on for me is hugely visual. Um, and so for a long, long time, and it, it really isn't there anymore, but for long, long years, I had this image of a road going down, you know, country road, of course, England, rolling green hills, and some trees, and then the road is turning around to the left, and just around that bend, I'll get where it is, that, where it is I'm wanting is just there. Not far, but not quite here. That's just an image of what we're like. We, when, I, when I get this together, when the kids are out of the house, when I've paid off them, when I've got one more PhD, then it's going to be perfect. We believe somehow that this moment isn't quite it. And we live because we live with that consciousness. We're looking ahead a little bit, sometimes far, 
But what we're doing by doing that is we're missing this moment. And the tragedy, this is a huge tragedy because actually there isn't another moment. There is only this moment. The other moment's all made up. It's an anticipation. It isn't real. And we don't live in what's real because we somehow think this isn't quite good enough. This is sort of, I'm on the way to somewhere. Don't we? It's, it's, it's a weird degree of dissatisfaction. And yet some of you have spoken to me today. I haven't checked with James about this conversation, but, and have been absolutely mind blown at how amazingly rich this moment is with the honeybee or the whatever it is, the, you know, the, that little, you know, had that halo around that bit of leaf that you were seeing and everything. But we don't usually live that way. We usually, so we're jumpily looking ahead. We don't naturally stay. The mind doesn't want to stay. It doesn't believe it. It doesn't even think this is where it's, the juice is at. It thinks it's the next thing. So we also think it's going to be awesome, the next thing. It's not just another moment. It's going to be a fantastic other moment. So we're looking for something big, better, not just something else, but something, the right thing, person, whatever it is. It's tragic. It's a big tragedy because awakening, enlightenment, freedom, love even, insights even, only occur in this moment. That's all there really is. The richness that we're all looking for is already here. You hear the words. We've all heard the words. It's being able to be fully with this moment, this being more than enough moment. And we have moments like that all through our day. But they aren't big and loud and fantastic and awesome most of the time. They're pretty quiet. And so we think, oh, no, it's going to be better than that. And so we miss these opportunities for freedom, which are happening and presenting themselves all day long. And this is a real tragedy. So we overlook moments of freedom. We anticipate. We think it's going to be bigger than this. We don't realize that it's so simple. We don't realize that a moment of well-being is so easy. It's so ordinary. It's so completely available. You don't have to do anything. In fact, doing something is the problem. We don't realize this. And so we miss our birthright, which is here. And the only way we can start accessing these moments of well-being are by staying here, by being here and then staying here. So, I mean, we teach all this all the time. Just be here says James this morning. Just, just, you know, be here with whatever it is is happening, that's all. Yeah, yeah, we say, yeah, yeah, but then where's the real secret teachings? Like, <laughs> I can do that part, but, but I, want the, I want the juice. What happens is we're like in our frogless, our frogness, our puppiness, our next momentness. We're bobbing around like corks on an ocean. Bobbing, 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 jumping, jumping, moving, moving, this, 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 all these changing various things. As we practice, we discover the ability, the mind discovers its ability to relax and to slow down and to stay and to settle. And it starts becoming more interested in just this simple little moment and this breath and so on. And we start sinking, in, as it were, from being a cork bobbing. We start getting waterlogged and we start to become, we experience, it feels much more like deep in the water rather than bobbing around on the surface, being thrown about by this and that and this person sniffing and this you know, sound here and this thought here and all kind of like tossing us around. We don't get so tossed around. There's all this movement. Life is happening, but it doesn't impact us the same way it does when you're bobbing around on the surface. It's much more restful. It's much more gentle. It's much more profound, the experience, as we become more present and we sort of sink into our reality more. And so we want to slow, we don't want to stop thinking, but we don't want to get so stimulated about it all and so busy. We want to just rest quietly, simply, at home in this body, breathing. We don't believe that's enough. We want more, we want stimulus, we want entertainment, we want excitement, we want drama. 
And eventually we get tired because it doesn't serve us particularly to have drama. You know, it's exhausting and it's like, oh God, not more drama. You know? <laughs> and we begin to sort of mature and realize simplicity is actually beautiful. Friendliness is totally enough. We don't have to love everything. We can just be with it peacefully. Our needs and our desires kind of become much more realistic. So we want to be able to train ourselves to stay just here with just this. And to whenever we go like, oh, but the next, when I'm just going to have a cup of tea, then I'll have a nice sitting. You know, I'll just need this. And when, when the bell rings, then it'll be better. Or, you know, that, just like, shh, 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 just this. Just stay with this. Wait. Wait and see. It's hard to begin with because you don't believe there's anything worth waiting and seeing. So you have to borrow our enthusiasm. That's why we teach. We teach to share with you what we've learned, what actually works for us, and hope you can try this and it help you. But we wanted to be able, and we need to train ourselves to be able to just stay with whatever is happening, this aching back, this feeling of boredom, this breath, simple little breath, and just wait and see what you'll see. And you don't know what you'll see, but you'll see things which are important. How to stay. So here's a few tips. Patience. (laughs) 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 And that doesn't mean you're waiting for something to happen. Patience, Kanti, the word K-H-A-N-T-I, it means just let this be enough. Like just tolerate this, whatever it is, just hang out with this. Don't do the other looking ahead. It doesn't mean waiting for the next. It means waiting with this. That's what it means. Patience. And over 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 and over. That kind of patience. Okay. Okay. And another sitting. And another day. Okay. It's the And we have to do that gently. Gently, gently, gently. We have to do it gently because if you try and do it anything more than gently, you'll get tired of it. You'll get fed up. It's exhausting. If you're getting tired, you're doing too much. You shouldn't get tired meditating. You're just hanging out. But not hanging out, spacing out. Hanging out, but being here. Lightly, gently, all day long. You're not digging ditches, as Christina Feldman says. You don't have to get tired. You're just being here. They're feeding you. You don't have to worry about anything. It's not really tiring. (laughs) If you're exhausted, it's because you've been thrashing around in there doing something. Um, that's why we keep saying play, you can't fail, you know, like it's just, just hang out and see what you see. Stay here though, stay. Another one that really helps, we've said it lots of times, so I won't make a big deal of it, but you must soothe yourself if you're upset. Because if you're upset, you're not going to stay here being upset. You're going to be trying to sort it out and figure it out and do something about it because it's intolerable. So you need to cheer yourself if you're upset and troubled in some way to soothe yourself so you can stay with here, obviously. Really important. Um, I did give you that mnemonic fish. Friendly interest. Softly staying. Shh. Don't have to make any comments about it. It's just what it is. Just softly, softly, spacious, gently, just stay here. But there's got to be a bit of interest in this internal process or it's way too boring. So developing interest, that's a skill in itself. Relax. Relax. If you want to have one little noting thing going on in your mind, say, relax. I have to tell you a story. When I was a midwife, there was a woman who... um, I can't remember much of the detail now because it was many years ago, but she was really keen and she was going to do it like this and she had this person to do this and this person was going to bake bread while she had the smelling of, smell of new baked bread. This person was the music person. This was the camera person. This person was going to phone people at different times and tell them the progress and she had it all handled. You know, she was really on top of it. And, uh, and so then she sat there and having her contractions and she said to herself, relax. <laughs> relax. She was like totally on top of everything. 
hours go by, hours go by. She's like, oh my God. And eventually she's finally, she's basically ground down by the process of trying to be so together until those who've had babies know what I'm talking about. She eventually was just like sprawled across a sort of spread eagle somewhere or other. And she was forgetting to say relax and her body is like, uh, and she's doing great. Now the baby's coming just fine. But as long as she was relax, it wasn't. (laughs) So you don't want to say to yourself, relax I don't mean (laughs) but you want to relax in fact it's like relax with this moment you know with this just some sitting here relax just relax really you can relax hugely important curiosity some kind of interest what what is going on in here what else can I see can I I used to play with it can I feel the nose hairs pointing inwards when I breathe in and pointing out so I'd breathe a few to try and tune into that and then yeah they're definitely bending mm. stuff like that like that's why I say play it's just to kind of intrigue you with being able to stay here this is a this is one I've, I've had to do for myself cut the bargaining just cut that like if I stay here for the next three minutes then I'll let myself have a little fantasy like just stop it just stop that just do it lightly playfully curiously but just cut that bargaining because we just like oh make deals with ourselves okay um don't expect anything you have no idea what it's going to be like it may be completely boring it's not about what might happen it's just no expectation so part of the the word that james said yesterday about relinquishing letting go we're we're letting go things like expecting anything we're letting go of the anticipation. We're letting go of futuring, of pasting, of bargaining, you know, of blaming, of commenting. Like, just shh. It's way simpler than that. Just be quiet and breathe in and out with a little bit of interest. That's it. We make it so complicated for ourselves. You know, Am I doing it right? And how do you do? Like, simple. Um... um I guess the last word I would say here is just surrender. We think we think we know better and we can something something, but just you know what? It's just that. It's just hanging out there, being present. Surrender to then whatever may happen, whatever it's like, whatever it may be. Pleasant, unpleasant, somewhere in between, changing into this, sometimes amazing, sometimes really not very nice at all. Surrender. That's just what's going on. It's not about what going on it's about learning to be with it learning to relax calm down and stay here then when you're present and you're aware and you're open you will understand things things will become obvious to you but not if you don't if you aren't here you can't get it by just answering a few questions you know saying oh yeah i get it right awesome (laughs) i can teach this stuff now (laughs) and when we talk about Doing one's work, you know, like doing one's psychological work. You know, if he's done his work, he's a nice man. He's done his work. What we mean is, you know, when you're in therapy, you're not actually doing work. You're not doing anything. You're letting yourself stay present and feel whatever it is that's, you know, that I really actually am really angry with so-and-so. Or this is very painful. We're learning to just be with and fully open to allow, experience what's going on. That's all it, that's what we're doing. We try and do all the other things, explain it and justify and blame someone. And we're actually all around the edges of it. We want to, it's just staying. Sounds so simple, huh? It's not so simple. We've never done it that way. We don't trust that that, besides we're scared of staying when it's unpleasant. It's the last thing we think we want to do is be like this. We want to be better or have it be nice or be at least interesting, something. It's scary to stay present with whatever may come, and we don't know. That's the other thing. The little mind, that little mind who puts everything in cages, really thinks that it can figure it all out. It thinks that it can know and explain and understand and get it all right and be able to spell it out. And actually, we have no idea what's going to come next. Life is a big mystery. Anything can happen at any time. We're in the, watch the San Andreas Fault Zone, right? All the way up the coast. 
you know, people in the middle of Italy have been having major rocking going on for this summer. It's like we have no idea, really. We're kidding ourselves when we think we can be on top of it all and get it all together and get the ducks all in a row. It's, I mean, we, we need to, to a degree, we need to get our insurance paid up and, you know, we need to run our lives appropriately. That's all fine. But deeply, it's a mystery. We don't know what's going to happen next and, what, and how we're going to respond and who's going to say what and what state we'll be in when it happens. We don't really know. We, we can apply ourselves and we need to. That's one of the tricky things. How do you apply yourself when you really don't know what will happen? You can't be certain. Does that mean you quit? No, no, no. It means we give everything, but we have to stay completely with this, like, I don't know what it's going to be like, though. That's radical. That alone. When we stay, as we learn this capacity, which we totally can, that's what's so great. It works. It's possible. The mind is so trainable. It's fantastic. It's really fun to have a mind that gets better trained. It's like, it's like being able to play beautiful music. You know, it's, it's not much fun to pick up a violin and not be very good at it. It's a bit of a drag, actually. But when you've got a good instrument and you know how to play it, I imagine, I always imagine violin playing. And for some reason, I think of meditating and violin playing. As, and it, I don't know why. I think because I'm so in awe of violins and violin music and the people who can play them without even a fret, you know, that the outcomes, you know, Mozart, oh my God. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot. to. But when it's there, it's exquisite. Well, the mind is like, it takes training, takes training. But when it's, when it's more available, it's an amazing instrument that can really see clearly. It can really be tender. It can really be empathetic. You know, it's, it's beautiful. And it's ours, and we have one. We just need to, to develop these things in it. When it's more developed, it's able to be more stable, it stops making comments and running around like a puppy and needing to get things and expecting the next moment to be better and on and on. When it isn't doing that, what happens is we begin to, because we sort of, present awareness becomes more stable, it's like a sort of screen. We start realizing that the value of what we're seeing inside isn't about all the things that are happening and how this leads to this leads to this. What we really appreciate is that there's a mechanism at work and how, how the mechanism of being a human being causes distress or causes ease. How when this leads to this, leads, when a, a sensation leads to a memory, leads to a a feeling leads to a bunch of thinking, leads to a bunch of planning and a lot of worry. We can see that whole process. The process becomes obvious. And it's the process of getting confused or getting in trouble or entangled and the process of unwinding that that's interesting. It's not each individual scenario and then I thought this thought and then this happened. It, they'll all happen eventually. Your life will always be happening. All these different impacts will be happening. But we start understanding the process of causing well-being and causing distress and preventing well-being. We start seeing the mechanism work. One of my teachers once said, it's like going to a Punch and Judy or a, a, a um, what's the name for it? Um, strings pulling puppets, a puppet show, but watching it from the back end and seeing how it works, you know, instead of being mesmerized by what's apparently happening, but actually seeing this is how it works. That's what we're doing. But we can't see how it works if we're jumping around, just seeing a little glimpse of this and a little touch of that. You don't get the mechanism that, you know, you see you're impressed by this moment, but you don't understand the process at all. Thomas Merton, the greatest need of our time is to clean out the enormous mass of mental and emotional rubbish that clutters our minds. And how we clean it out is see it is stay present with it and understand it. And you'll only understand it if you stay with it and see, oh, look. Oh, look how that all is there. Not to take it personally, not to worry, and not to fix. Mm. A couple of other things, but I think we're out of time. I think I just want to mention this in passing. It's not really Dharma teaching, but I want to mention it. Um, there's lots of research these days, more and more and more research, it seems, 
um, about the heart, the human heart, as an organ. Uh, and one book I've often quoted from and was very touched by when I read it is written by a heart transplant surgeon. And in it, he talks about how hearts as organs aren't just organs. And sometimes 15% of the time, which is about the ratio of really sensitive individuals, 15% of us in this room are really particularly sensitive compared to the rest of us. Those sensitive ones, we all want to be one of them, but we're not. Um, <laughs> it's costly too. 15% um, approximately, when they receive a donated heart, receive also the tastes, the loves, the language of the donor. It's the most in incredible thing. And there's one story I'll tell you because it's just, it's just touching. But I just, because we're talking about the heart so much in this retreat. So the, there had been a young, uh, there'd been a middle-aged couple and they had a car crash and it was dark. And um, the, the husband was driving and was killed and the wife was fine. And his heart was donated to a young 18-year-old Mexican-American man. And a year later, which sometimes if they choose, they met. If they, and they ask the surgeon if the donor wants to meet the recipient. So the wife of the guy whose heart it was arranged to meet the young Mexican guy who had her husband's heart. And so they were meeting in the chapel in the hospital. And um, so she was there with the surgeon. And 45 minutes after the appointment, the surgeon is like, I don't think he's going to show up. And often they don't show up. So she said, he's here. I know I can feel him. He's somewhere in the building. Just let's wait. So they waited a few more minutes, and then this guy comes with his mum, his Mexican mum, who doesn't speak very good English. And, um, and so they meet, and uh, very soon, she, the wife, goes to the young man, and she says, can I put my hand on your chest? And so he opens his shirt, and she puts her hand on his chest, and he, out of his mouth comes, it's all copacetic. And the mother is talking to the surgeon while sort of trying to leave them a little privacy, you know, for this extraordinary. And so the mother, without having very good English, says to the surgeon, what's copacetic? He's always saying, what's copacetic? When, since this heart, when everything's okay. And she, the wife, hears the question and turns and she says, this was our special word. Whenever we'd had an upset and then we were okay again, we would say, it's all copacetic. Goosebumps. So this heart that we touch when we go from head to heart, or you hold when you're upset, or whatever, is this incredible, not just organ, this is an energy field that's extremely receptive, that appreciates being touched, you know, that is vulnerable, that we all feel we know the same thing, we're all vulnerable, we're all scared, we're all sensitive. We're all insecure. Life is mysterious. It's going to have a great share of suffering as well as incredible beauty, as well as a lot of boredom. It's not an easy thing to access. But our wisdom is this. It's this. It isn't knowledge. It's knowledge once it's experienced and integrated in our lives. And so we want to make this journey however we can, in whatever way we can, because this is where freedom is. The, sh the Buddha says, the sure heart's release. Not the sure head's release. The sure heart's release. Releasing this guarded, anxious, sensitive, vulnerable part of ourselves. Because life is challenging. Life is up and down. We, be, we develop, once we're able to be with it more and calm the mind down from making things harder to deal with, we're able actually to be incredibly strong. Courage is from the French word cur, meaning heart, heartful. We can, when we have courage, we have a full heart and we can really be with all of it, whatever it is, whatever it is, because the heart can bear it. The heart can bear a lot more we think it can. It's got this, it's a stretchy capacity. But we need to do it gently and take care of it. Kindly, respectfully, because it's vulnerable. But it isn't as scary as we think. 
It's beautiful, even when it's vulnerable, even when you're facing, when you're able to, great sadness. There's something sweet about being able to really feel the sadness. It's when we can't stand it that it's not so sweet, it's horrifying. Oh, this awful tragedy. But when we're actually really able to go there, it's like, oh, it's a bitter sweetness grief. And it's the being able to be with it that's the sweet part, even when the thing itself is difficult. We all can. We, We have these amazing, these hearts are amazing. So welcome to our hearts. Let's just sit quietly. A wise sage from India once said, the mind makes the abyss, the heart crosses it. you wishing I'd ring the bell <laughs> on to the next moment <laughs> I'm teasing you thank you for your attention hope this is helpful so we have 20 minutes Let's take 25. Who ring? Oh, no, the, uh, the bell will go, but don't rush back when you hear the outside bell. Come back sit about five past. It's nice to have time to go have a cup of tea or something. But we'll do a sit at five past nine, and we'll end with some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.